This is AgriPulse Open Mic, brought to you by the Corn Farmers Coalition. For decades, family farmers have worked in solitude, far away from consumers, but that's about to change. The Corn Farmers Coalition wants to engage the public in a discussion to reaffirm farmers' commitment to safe, abundant, and affordable food. Through innovation, technology, and ingenuity, farmers are meeting our growing needs for food, fuel, and fiber. To learn more about how productivity and sustainability go hand in hand, go to www.cornfarmerscoalition.org. This week's guest is Dr. Joseph Glauber, the USDA Chief Economist. From 1992 till 2007, Dr. Glauber served as the Deputy Chief Economist at the USDA. Dr. Glauber is responsible for the Department's agricultural forecast and projections and for advising the Secretary of Agricultural and Economic Implications of Alternative Programs, Regulations, and Legislative Proposals. He's responsible for the Office of the Chief Economist, the World Agricultural Outlook Board, the Office of Risk Assessment and Cost-Benefit Analysis, the Global Change Program Office, and the Office of Energy Policy and New Uses. Dr. Glauber, thank you for being our guest on AgriPulse Open Mic. We appreciate it. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. We're in a drought across much of the country right now, and farmers are watching the weather and the markets and looking at government programs in case their losses are severe. I'd like to get your reaction as an economist and administrator at USDA regarding the agency's role in informing and helping growers during this critical time. Well, you know, the primary program that we have out there that I think will be of, of help to those producers who are, who are you know, in these drought areas and who may be suffering um, serious losses uh, certainly is the crop insurance program. And I think there, the story actually is, is, is pretty good. I mean, if you look at the, the states where we're looking at, at, you know, very serious drought, and I, I see, you know, states like Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, uh, even Iowa, Kentucky, Missouri, I mean, a, a whole number of states where a large percent, if not all of the corn, is in areas with, that are you know, suffering from drought, you know, you're, you're seeing numbers anywhere from 40 to uh, high 70s in terms of the percent of the crop in, in seen rated as poor or very poor right now. The good news is, is crop insurance participation in those states is generally pretty high. Some 80-some-odd percent of corn in Illinois, um, you know, enrolled in the crop insurance program. Uh, similarly, you know, very similar numbers for, for soybeans. Uh, that's generally true uh, throughout a lot of the Midwest, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, uh, Kansas. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at just the numbers that Risk Management Agency puts out. And generally, you know, there the percent of the corn crop, at least last year, you know, ranges anywhere from 80 to 90 percent. Now, what, what that means, of course, is that, that if you're enrolled in a program, a lot of producers are enrolled in revenue programs. Uh, a lot of those producers are enrolled in revenue programs that will indemnify at the um, harvest price option. Um, and, and so there you're able to take, uh, take advantage of, at least if you're suffering crop losses, you'll be uh, indemnified at you know, these high prices that we've seen. And that, that certainly should help offset um, yield, some yield losses. Now, for some, it, it's not going to offset everything. Uh, obviously, a lot depends on on what sort of coverage level you've bought 
uh, you know, many producers uh, have gone ahead and bought at 80, 85 percent coverage. And at those those levels, actually, given where prices are right now, uh, you think that the the actual revenue that you might receive would would even be higher than sort of what you might have expected at at planning time. Do you have any? A doubt that the crop insurance industry has the resources to address the major losses that are pending. Um, you know, by by statute, we require the uh, and by regulation, we and through our reinsurance agreement with the companies, the companies are required to put um, uh, put up surplus to cover losses, and so that's all guaranteed by the the program itself. Um, we have had instances, obviously, where there have been, for other reasons, um, uh, companies have, have, have gotten into financial problems over time. But at least in terms of covering indemnities, um, the standard reinsurance agreement, uh, uh, the regulations under that, that is our relationship with the private companies uh, require uh, that they hold enough surplus, that is, available funds to cover um, catastrophic losses so um, kind of the worst possible loss they they have funds that will cover their portion of the loss of course the rest would be made up by the government you know you asked about you know what the potential indemnities could be of course this year we're seeing a record level from from the the hit on on corn and other crops last year um you know with a with a total indemnity you know somewhere in the on the order of of uh, almost ten, over ten, almost eleven billion dollars. I mean, you can imagine if we were to have uh, uh, a loss like what we saw in the ninety, early ninety three or nineteen eighty eight, you would really be talking about twenty billion or somewhere in there. But I, again, it's still pre- premature. We'll we'll know a lot more when we get the the estimates in August. Dr. Glover, the July crop report uh, dropped corn production by twenty bushels per acre, almost two billion bushels, and that seemed to be a departure from a normal phasing down of production over several months rather than just dropping it all in one report. Um, is that just the way the the chips fell, or do you have a policy that you are calling it as you see it each month, one at a time? There was a lot of uh, talk. I, I think early, uh, you know, we came out in May with a, a, with, uh, a, a crop estimate of 166 uh, bushels per acre. There were a lot of people who questioned that at the time. The, the rationale that we had is that if you, you know, we're looking at our, our typical, you know, we come into the year with a trend-based uh, model, uh, which I think was showing something like 164 bushels per acre. We added a little to that because of the the progress that had been made in terms of planning, and and that is one thing that our models have shown that that all else equal, that is normal weather that early um, uh, season um, uh, progress tends to add uh, to the size of the crop. And so the, our analysts made those adjustments in May. We didn't adjust them in June, and I think that there's a, you know, uh, uh, one reason we didn't is we knew in two weeks we were going to have new acreage numbers and that we would be revisiting it all in July. Um, was the, the that estimate too high in June? Yeah, I think it it. It probably was. We already were seeing uh, some some uh, the the. If you remember that the dryness really started coming in in those first couple of weeks of June. Uh, I think if you go back to June 13th, there was something like um, 
why I think the numbers were, let's see, I think the um, first week of June or something like that, we were still down in like 15, 20% of the crop in drought conditions, corn crop. And, of course, you know, over the course of six weeks, we're now 80% of the corn crop in areas that are suffering from drought. So it really emerged pretty quickly uh, over over that period. But certainly by the time uh, this estimate uh, you know, our analysts were looking at, at the July crop. It was clear that what was seen as originally as a real uh, favorable uh, development, that is having an early season um, uh, plantings and, and such, uh, you know, having a crop two or three weeks ahead of schedule, all of a sudden was a curse because of the dry weather hitting in June. Are you concerned about the Chicago Mercantile Exchange expanding its trading hours so that it's trading during the times when the USDA reports are released? I think it's the way the world is moving. Um, there's no question that, um, you know, we've already seen that for the cotton market. That started back in 2008. Uh, the ice uh, markets in, in New York, they moved their uh, their trading hours so that they were open during the time we were releasing the um, crop production reports. And so we, you know, we've watched that and have seen that that's gone pretty much without a hitch. Um, the the real question that I think is important for USDA uh, in this, and of course the 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 exchanges, their decision in terms of when they're open is really an um, uh, that's between them and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Um, I, there, were, there were a number of people who said to us, "Well, should, you know." Couldn't you just now release your reports now after the CME has now changed its closing hours to, you know, in the afternoon? Could you release it right after that? And I think that the, the point is, is that, well, one is that ice, the ice markets are open at that time, and I think this, uh, we're really in a brief hiccup before we see 24-hour round-the-clock trading, that this is just, you know, part of doing business these days. Now, for us, the critical thing is making sure that we get these reports out, that they're accessible, uh, you know, so uh, producers and, and merchants and others are able to download them in, in a fast fashion. And, and there we've, we've, we've worked a lot over the last um, uh, month and a half with our IT folks here and um, to, to make sure that these reports are getting out on a whole network of servers so that, um, you know, people aren't going to experience hang-up times and things like that. You know, we just had a comment period close, or and we've got, gotten several um, uh, comments from individuals, and we're looking at those right now. I think the, the key thing for me there is that we want to ensure that we're releasing these reports when there's adequate liquidity in the market, that, that um, you know, you don't want to do this at 2 o'clock in the morning, obviously, uh, but you want to do it at the time when there are, are, you know, people in Chicago trading these reports. The House and Senate farm bills are moving along. They've modified the traditional safety net. Uh, they're also going to reduce spending. I wonder your reaction to the changes in the potential bill that's coming out versus what we've had and its impact on growers. Uh, I think one way or the other, uh, we're going to be looking at a very different set of farm programs than what we've seen, you know, really over the last... 15, 20 years, direct payments, which we've you know been been around since 1996, uh, where farmers receive those regardless of whether or not they planted that crop, uh, regardless what the price was, um, you know they're going to be gone. And 
for many producers, those have been the major payments that they've received over the last five or ten years. And it will be replaced with, you know, a revenue-based, uh, at least in the Senate bill, a revenue-based program um, that will be tied either to your own revenue on farm or, or a county revenue that will be tied very closely in one sense to how your crop insurance works. And so it, it, it really is seen as, is as much an augmentation of the, uh, some, something that augments the crop insurance coverage to so-called cover these shallow losses. Um, on the House side, that type of coverage is available, um, but also they have a, 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 a choice between that and a price-based program, which really harkens back, I think, much more uh, to some of the old uh, um, uh, deficiency payment type programs that we saw prior to the 96 Farm Bill, with the big exception of being that it's payable on actual product or at least actual plantings rather than uh, your old base acres. At least if the budget projections are right, there will be fewer payments uh, than under the current program. And I think there, particularly for things like direct payments, where there's been a lot of criticism by in particularly among the non-farm community, uh, uh, non-farm public is saying, why are people receiving payments when prices are high? By tying these prices back to production, um, you could see some cases where they, you know, those, those payments may be uh, making, um, you know, having an, an influence in terms of what, what crops are, are being uh, potentially produced. The other thing is that there's a, a, a fairly new uh, uh, option here as well that would augment um, uh, a supplemental program for your crop insurance uh, program by which by all looks and analysis looks to be a uh, could be a very popular program and that's this so-called supplemental coverage option where you would be allowed to uh, insure on on an area basis at least um, uh, to provide some coverage in the event of, of capturing your deductible on your crop insurance policy. Dr. Joe Glauber, Chief Economist for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, let's turn to trade. I know you've been very active in U.S. international trade, and exports are a major part of American farm income. How about this Trans-Pacific Partnership? Um, is it a big reach in balancing uh, world trade? If it succeeds in, in you know, seeing comprehensive liberalization in um, uh, again, the way the, the original number of countries, of course, are pretty small countries as far as the U.S. is concerned. I, you have New, you know, New Zealand and, and a handful of, the, uh, of other smaller country uh, trading partners. But you bring in, and, and of course, adding Mexico and, and Canada doesn't do a lot. Other, I mean, certainly Mexico, we already have through NAFTA essentially no no tariff barriers. Um, with Canada, we still have some specific commodities, and a lot would have uh, would, would depend on what happens, uh, you know, for dairy and hogs and other sorts of uh, um, aspects of the, uh, you know, in the TPP negotiations. But on top of that, if you think that you know you have countries like Japan that potentially could uh, be brought into this, Japan's a, a huge market for us. Um, you know, we we sell a lot to Japan already. We still face a lot of tariffs in Japan, so I, I think there's a lot of people that they see real opportunity in Japan if Japan were to join. And then it, it, again, the real tantalizing idea about TPP, I think, is if if you could begin to bring in other countries 
other Asian countries, in particular countries like Indonesia, uh, uh, Taiwan, uh, Thailand, all these, I think, you know, are, are seen as, as real potential uh, winners as far as U.S. agriculture is concerned. You know, this, this market we're talking about is where we've seen a lot of the major trade growth over the last uh, several years. So that is the promise that I think a lot of people see in a TPP. But, uh, but again, we're still at, at even though we've been conducting these uh, negotiations for, um, you know, uh, a few years now, we're still getting into the, uh, the, the market access issues. I think we really haven't quite seen where that's leading yet. So, um, you know, I think we should have a much better idea in, in uh, you know, three to six months from now. Dr. Glomber, thank you very much for the work you've done with the U.S. Department of Agriculture and in trade. And, uh, Thank you for being our guest on AgriPulse Open Mic. Thanks very much. It was uh, delighted to do it, and it's always good to, to talk to you all. That's Dr. Joe Glober, Chief Economist of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Thank you for listening. I'm Ken Root.